This episode is brought to you by Customized Social Distancing. There's one thing people universally appreciate about the year of the pandemic, and that's the wonderful new experience of universal social distancing. Not so long ago, you were made to feel like an antisocial snob, a cacogen, if you will, for not wanting a stranger breathing his hot stranger breath on your neck in line at the supermarket or bank, or at a urinal. Remember how you'd pull away from that human gorilla on the bus or train and he acted like, What? You got a problem with me or something? Why, no sir. Please rub that colossal sweaty arm right up against me. Yeah, just great. Now that social distancing is the default social norm, we have room to do Tai Chi while we wait to be seated at a restaurant. Alas, our personal bubbles are collapsing again, and soon, as before, we'll be nesting our buttocks against each other in public. But you can still make use of the advanced technology gained during this period of ideal civilization with our friends at Customized Social Distancing. No, you can't maintain your distance from every random stranger anymore, but with their patented magnetized system, you can still keep a healthy space between you and that person you've been intentionally avoiding for 12 months. Hey, Howie, remember that hundred bucks I loaned ya? The customized social distancing system automatically pushes you 20 feet away where you can easily duck into a mall or restroom entrance. Gloria, I haven't seen you all year. I'm looking for an organizer for our next garden party. And thank you, Customized Social Distancing, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book. Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Craig, we have corrections. A lot of corrections. So we better get on it. On Reddit, Neil Smith says, Neil I heard you two wondering whether Severian was looking for an Ulan specifically or just anyone he could find. I thought it was pretty clear from the text that he's specifically expecting and looking for an Ulan for reasons of logic, not because of any prescient warning or odd senses. All through this book in the previous, Severian was warned that the roads were guarded. Neil notes there was a reference to seeing Ulans on patrol on the roads just the day before in this chapter, which is a significant point, mm. I think. Yeah. He goes on. The two were also very aware of the nearby, quote, forbidden road that returned to grass on the Giles Bank, which they were avoiding. We see that the road is kept clear, but is covered in grass. Then they gallop toward the river, and Severian is looking for the road and finds it, quote, a sinuous ribbon of green. He doesn't know there will be an Ulan at any specific place, but expects to find one somewhere along the road. So he rides down it. Yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And I'll, I'll chalk that one up to one of those sort of overthinking, overreading, mm. tiny sort of plot motivation details. Yeah. And I think that's right, especially if he does, I mean, if Wolf mentions it earlier in the chapter, which I had forgotten even while we were recording. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. 
Yep. I, and yeah, I, I find that compelling. I, I think there are points where Severian does exhibit uh, predator natural perception, but this is probably not one of those. Yep. He's, he's looking for an Ulan. He was working to avoid them. Now he's endeavoring to find one. Yep. On that point, Mike Farrar says, Bar your arms from me. That when Severian says, his life for mine, he thinks Severian was already leaning heavily into using the claw for whatever reason. So even though it was a low thing to use the Ulan as bait, he thinks Severian intended on some level to resurrect him consciously or subconsciously. So, you know, a mean thing, but he always intended to reverse it. Hmm. And Michelandre Driussi so is in agreement. He says, I agree. In addition, Severian's lapse, his moral failure, his take him, not me moment is the essential context for the miracle to come. All the more poignant since the dead guy is a stranger, a man Severian, quote, threw under the bus to save his own life. And Severian seems to have great regret to the point of a desperate attempt to lend assistance to an obviously hopeless cause. That That's one of those things that is, it's like compelling if I think that's how the claw works. Mm -hmm. And I still just, it just brings up all those questions we've talked about, about like, like, why does it work here and not there? I mean, right. uh, that just brings <laughs> up more, more problems for me about how the claw decides to work or not. But, but yeah, I mean, the fact that it's, it's an, a bad thing and Severian repents for it. I mean, that gives this kind of moral power to it. Even if you want to say that, like you had said, if it's a first Severian thing where he's right. saying which one is which, well, maybe he feels bad here. Right. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, yeah. I need to overcome a sin or something. Yeah, I, I could go on a bit about my differences of and particularities of reading this book, but I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. So I'll just try and hold that off. Um, Neil Smith also says about uh, the Thecla chapter, chapter 11. Far more interesting to me, though, is the image of Thecla in the mirrors. Her being in a room surrounded by mirrors and disappearing reminds me of the tale that Severian gives of Thecla's story of her friend going to see Father Aniri's mirrors. Should we think that it was Thecla, not actually her friend, Domnina, who went into the mirrors and came back different? If so, what else does that imply? Huh? Well, Craig, that would imply a lot. <laughs> I think would apply uh, Severian's mind has become in some way the universe itself. Let me, it yeah, I want to check, I want to check the language of that quote when he talks about seeing Thecla. Now, is that, is chapter that in, 11, that's chapter in 11. the Thecla Near, and not yeah. when he, not when he freaks out with Jonas. Okay. Hold on. Um, oh wait, no, it's in the nachos. Okay. So first page, like fourth paragraph. Um, at times, I who remember am not Severian, but Thecla, as though my mind were a picture framed behind glass, and Thecla stands before that glass and is reflected in it. Two, ever since that night when I think of her without thinking also a particular time and place, the Thecla who rises in my imagination stands before a mirror in a shimmering gown of frost white that scarcely covers her breast but falls in ever-changing cascades below the waist. So... Okay, so here's the way I read that. Severian's not actually saying, I remember her looking in a mirror and seeing back. I think what he's saying is, this is the image in my mind that comes up. I still am totally down with sort of resurrecting the the mirror imagery here because it could still be very important and intentional to say that when he remembers her and when he brings her back and it's really her, 
the experience is like looking in a mirror. And so something then, I mean, that's deliberate because the mirrors are also all about travel and different universes and times and all this kind of thing, almost making connection between memory and actually going to a different universe in some way right. or another. I mean, that's what that would seem to, to do here. So yeah, I just, the way I read that quote doesn't necessarily make me think that he's remembering her in a room of mirrors, just for the simple thing that he says, as though my mind were a picture frame behind right. glass. Um, and then the other one, Thecla who rises in my imagination stands before a mirror. Like when, or he says, ever since that night, when I think of her without thinking also of a particular time and place, then I think of her standing before a mirror. But that's still really cool because it still connects it to the mirror rooms and yeah, yeah, all yeah, the travel and the strangeness and um, that goes with that. So that's still an awesome catch that, I did not before, so I'm going to go make a big note in my book. <laughs> well, I like the bridge a lot. I'm not so sure that it is exactly as suggested, I, and I'm not sure Neil does either. He's proposing. Look, here's a potential connection, and oh yeah, but I think it's deal. I think it's got to be there. Yeah. Like that the fact that he, I mean, he describes it twice, like once behind as being, as yeah. I'm the one in the mirror looking at her. And then another time as if Thecla's looking at a mirror. Yeah, he's definitely like, but the problem I have is that it would create a puzzle of why Aniri hearing about Thecla appearing in a mirror would invite Domnina. Uh, I mean, sure. I, yeah. I, yeah. I don't like it because I, I like another explanation more. Sure. But I like that other one because it explains the world for me. But this just turns the whole world into a bigger mystery. And I think that for that reason, a lot of people will like this theory, but I'm just a different audience. Mm -hmm. And I may be going more metaphorical with it here, but I still like that. I like the idea that especially when you get both ways, you see Severian mm -hmm. as the reflection, like he's the one in the glass and Severian's looking at him. And then you get him as Thecla seeing herself in the glass, which does all kinds of cool stuff, which mixes up identity and talks about, you know, who I am is maybe just a reflection, but a reflection is a real person. And uh, it's so cool. It, it just complicates all those questions of identity. In and the idea ways. of Thecla escaping out of Severian's mind in a way into Aniri's mirrors, it, it's very uh, Borgian idealist, mm -hmm. right? Could be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely see that too. Yep. Right. Let's see. Last chapter, we were puzzling over how it was that Severian so quickly ceased to see himself as a follower of Vodalus after the Feast of Thecla, and how strange that struck us. Well, on Reddit, Nick Lang says, tearing my hair out here listening to this episode. <laughs> Severian turns on Vodalus because of his allegiance to the Megatherians. That doesn't strike me as confuddling in the slightest. Well, look, I don't have any explanation of my own for Severian's sudden revolt against Vodalus. At least, you know, Nick has one that he's confident in, and that makes his better than mine. That said, I don't really think this explanation fits the timeline that we're given, which to me is something like this. Vodalus says, our friends under the sea, and Severian, you know, nods, oh. Thea, I have a message from your sister. And Thea says, we eat people. And Severian vomits up his lunch and says, <laughs> we've got to get out of here. <laughs> so, you know, Severian's reaction to the blatant reveal that Vodalus is in league with the Megatherians does not seem to disturb him at all. It's the blatant reveal that 
about the cannibalism that seems to throw him. In fact, at the moment the Autark, on the flyer in the Citadel of the Autark, at the moment he instructs Severian to kill him, Severian seems surprised to discover that he doesn't hate the Autark any longer, as he has all his life. So, you know, revolting against someone because he was in favor of the Autark's enemies, I don't know. I don't really think so. There's also just the simple fact that already a possible Megatherian has saved him from drowning. Mm -hmm. And yeah. when he sees her again, he's totally drawn to her, right? And it's right. it's kind of only Dorcas at the last minute. Right. Sort of yeah. pulling him out of it that what saves him. So when he sees Juturna again, he's not like you evil Megatherian. He's, <laughs> you know, he's enraptured again. And yeah, you could maybe argue that, you know, they have mind control spells or whatever. Right. But I don't think so. Because also, like you said, when, when he does meet the Autark, he's like, I don't hate you. Yeah, um, and, I'll surprise and, you. Yeah. So and I don't know. I feel like Severian at this point and throughout most of the book, I feel like he's neither really on anyone's side mm -hmm. other than the guilds. Like he's even and that's even tortured. Right. Ha ha. <laughs> but like he knows that the Megatherians want to take over Earth, but he doesn't really like the Autark so much, which is why he was kind of fascinated with the Bodalists in the first place. Um, and I think that Severian is sort of in a throughout most of this, he's kind of in a, I, I guess, kind of an ag agnostic state towards a lot of those things where he's like, I don't know exactly what to think of all right. these things. Um, and he's trying to get like he's he's bugging Jonas for questions about things. He's trying to figure out. What do you think? So um, so that might be my response, that even though we kind of from a meta perspective, when we know the Hyroduels are fighting the Megatherians and we think we're supposed to be with the Hyroduels, we might think Megatherians bad. But I don't think Severian necessarily sees it that way. Yeah. Especially uh, at this point in the novel. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I apologize if you are further bald by listening to us <laughs> respond this way. <laughs> <laughs> that little Stephen Ferg reference. Channel that frustration <laughs> into rebuttal number two. Yeah. Carry it on. Very, very good. Yeah, you, you know, your characterization of Severian reminds me a lot of Latro as well. Everyone is trying to get him on their side. Yeah. And, you know, he's just he's just a guy wandering around. And mm -hmm. maybe a little bit like uh, Abel as well in The Wizard Knight. Yeah, I think that's kind of where I often feel like Wolf's sort of default narrator position is, is somebody trying to, who has a perspective and who has something of an agenda, but who's in a world that they haven't quite decided on all the specifics yet. Like right. they're kind of in the midst, just like everyone else. And that's, uh, you know, not true necessarily of Silk in the same way. Um, Horn's got his own, all kinds of problems going on, but Severian, Latro, I mean, yeah, Abel, you mentioned Abel, so many of the short story characters feel like that to me. But, right. Yeah. Well, and even Silk, Silk is a lot like that in that, yeah, he has his own idea about what he wants to do, but there are all of these other forces or, you know, if someone's putting up Silk right. for call day all over, over town oh, yeah, yeah. and everybody is, is trying to, use him as their banner at the very oh, yeah. least and yeah. he's all and even as things develop right he is an augur for the gods and yet he's right. finding out the gods aren't yeah, so exactly godly. and yeah, but yeah. he's still a holy man and so exactly. he's, he's always kind of trying to figure out what he what's really going on with these things right yeah. nick seems to acknowledge all of what we're saying he thinks 
anyway that it's a slow building sentiment. Uh, Severian learns that Vodalus is in league with the powers under the ocean. He learns that Vodalus is not a man of the people that he always supposed. And then there's the reveal from Thecla that puts him, you know, right over the top. Yeah. Uh, Michael Andre Dreesi has multiple thoughts on this chapter. Here's a thought that's new to me, at least. The timing scrambles causality a bit since the switch happened before the gory feast. But this sudden change might be taken as a sign of spirit baptism that Severian has become a new creation. The feast is often compared to a communion, and there is also a, quote, wedding aspect to it, water into wine. Also, Thecla's body is called the bride. But here's the other echo, which thematically folds into the others. Thecla becomes fused to Severian, rather like the Holy Spirit joins Jesus at the baptism of Jesus by John. So there's that. And then, regarding the sense that Severian seems to maybe resent that others are partaking in Thecla rather than himself alone, an experience that he, you know, he personally seems to like rather than resent. Michael says, the notion of Severian having jealousy over others who also ingested Thecla seems valid and dark. It might add to Severian's bad feeling for Vodalus, but he didn't know it would be Thecla when he switched on Vodalus. So it isn't an origin point. Yeah. 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 So it's not an origin point, not on its own, right? Honestly, nothing quite lines up for me on the changes in Severian. And I think it's interesting that, as far as I know, he never remarks on the reason for the change. Finally, on the notules in this chapter itself, Michael says, Suddenly, when least expected, a Lewis Carroll ninja strike. Twinkle, twinkle, little bat, how I wonder where you're at. <laughs> in Chapter 9, Episode of Claw, I called the Balukathir the largest land animal ever known, possibly as large as a land animal can be, almost six meters high, up to 20 tons. On Facebook, Jeremy Sheets says, Sharing our love between the sheets. I'm sorry to nitpick and call out James, but as a biologist, I must correct something said about the Balukathir being the largest land animal. They are the largest land mammals. They're dwarfed by sauropods. That genus is large and could be larger than some dinosaurs, but they still never reached the largest land animal title. Okay, yeah, thanks, Jeremy. I'm not a biologist. I knew that sauropods like Brachiosaur were much bigger than the Balikathir, but I was under the impression that those animals lived in marshes, you know, mostly aquatic, because they couldn't support their own great weight on land. But after checking that out, I learned that while that was believed in the 19th and early 20th century, paleontologists no longer believe that on the whole. That's some serious, outdated scientific knowledge. <laughs> That's, well, <laughs> yeah. I was I like, as a kid, when I was really into dinosaurs, I was probably reading old, very old books. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I realized that that's basically where my dinosaur like education came from, too. <laughs> yeah. Books. Um, I do like how that thread, though, became at least partly a discussion of the word megatherian and how megatherium was the name for the giant ground sloth and why wolf picked that word. But it's we threw around a whole bunch of fun 
sort of playing with why did he choose that word? Why did yeah. he change it? What could be done? So there's there's some interesting stuff in there. Well, yeah, yeah. I think what he actually said was, on a side note, I hate the use of mergatherium, the ending with an M, for Erebus and Abaya. Although the Latin translation fits, all I see is a large sloth lumbering about. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, in that case, as other pointed out, a megatherium with an M is an extinct giant prehistoric South American ground sloth. It went extinct about 10,000 years ago. Which, by the way, is just an awesome thing. <laughs> yeah. If it wasn't real, Wolf should have created it. Yeah. And naturally, uh, biologist Jeremy would be familiar with that term. And the word megatherian, ending with an A-N instead of a U-M, is an adjective for megatheriums. Uh, you know, mega, uh, you know, the megatherian sloth or whatever it is. I don't know how you would use it. But in the Book of the New Sun, the volume that Olten refers to in Chapter 6 of Shadow is entitled The 17 Megatherians. Uh, the word megatherian, A-N, is not an adjective, but a noun. And the reference to the group of 17 and Cadro with the 17 stones and the literal meaning of megatherian being great beast and that Baldanders and Typhons seem to use the same naming conventions as Erebus and Abaya, it's led most readers, I think, to suppose that the 17 megatherians are the mountain-sized rulers beneath the ocean. I hesitate to call them alien rulers because we don't really know if they're non-human. In fact, I personally suppose they probably are human. I just like that it does at least have that sloth implication to it and the mm -hmm. idea that these giant creatures are going to bring humanity to a kind of sloth-like state, which is what it seems like the Ashians kind of are, and also the fact that those things died out. Oh, yeah. So that too would be the end of human evolution. And that happens. So there's, yeah. there's me forcing it into being appropriate. <laughs> well, Vasily Ngogli pointed out that a megatheer, something like a giant sloth in Severian's world, presumably is actually referenced as being chained on the grounds of House Absolute in chapter 22. Yep. Quote, yep. Somewhere a megatheer roared and shook its chains there seemed to be no other sound. I halted and listened, and the megatheer, no longer stirred by my footfalls, settled back into the death-like sleep of its kind. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. 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 I know there are a lot of echoes there to Chapter 6, and we'll get to it when we get to it. I can see why it strikes biologist Jeremy disjointedly, but I think the megatherians is simply the best word for whatever species Erebus and Abaya are. And despite calling us out, uh, <laughs> me out, he wants us to know that he still loves the podcast. And I know he does because he puts his money where his mouth is and supports the podcast as a patron. Correcting us is a labor of love. It shows you care. We ask for the corrections at the end of every episode. We want our nits to be picked. Thank you, Jeremy. And he wraps it up and says, I may go through all the prehistoric animals mentioned and do something with it. I do not know what yet, but I always loved how Wolf used extinct animals to make the world familiar yet strange. Shows his genius at world building. Absolutely. Yeah, I could not agree more. 
I do think, though, that if you get upset with something, uh, particularly James says, then you should always talk <laughs> about pulling out your hair and frustration. That should be the new standard. Like, in, in what form of you don't even have to mention mutilation in that case? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What form of self mutilation have we driven you to? That's yeah. what we want. You should have seen the great full head of hair Craig had when we started this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, ooh. <laughs> and you mentioned the uh, discussion about various pronunciations. And I should mm -hmm. mention, um, Stuart Ham about a half a teacup of brought up all of his pronunciations that bug him, that we make. And one thing he did say about, I've always pronounced them hieroduals, you always pronounce them hieroduals. Someone pointed out that the term hierod, that the word is not really Greek. It's derived from Latin, hydrodulus. So yeah, it doesn't make sense to use a Greek pronunciation, I think, for the word. So however, based on that, I think it should be hierodule rather than hierodule or hierodules, based on the original pronunciation. And that is the way I'm going to do it from now on. Interesting. Is that right? For some reason, I thought the etymology of the word was... was Hydrodulus. Hyro... Hyrodulus. Like hyro being... I don't know. I'll check later. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can correct me later. We can have... A, I'll, I'll write you a, a hair-pulling hair out note later. <laughs> and, and Jeremy also noted that in the last chapter, when I read Jonas saying, nodules, a bat appeared at that very moment. And he says, of course, I was looking for bats doing my job, but still funny and cool. <laughs> no, I just thought that was awesome that we actually had some drama. Like usually I don't think of people listening to us being like filled with drama, but already we've got like bats flying at people, people yeah, taking yeah. their hair out. It's a, it's a good thing. This is a 3D podcast. So <laughs> Stephen Frug. Can do the has come up with corrections on Facebook. He's been plotting along slowly, so it'll be a while, I think, before he hears these comments. But Quality here, takes time. That's, yeah, that's right. But here goes. He says, yeah, yeah, I'm way behind. A bassinate, defenestrate, and a strapidame. A few points after this episode. He says, quote, a small inconsistency, what it means I don't know, in chapter 30, the one where uh, Severian first encounters Hathor for the first time, and Severian and Dorcas have sex for the first time. Asked if he ever killed a woman, Severian says, yes, I did once, meaning presumably Thecla. In chapter 37, in Citadel, Severian says, and I found myself thinking of Morwenna, the only woman whose life I've ever taken. He doesn't kill Morwenna until Claus, so is he lying in Shadow 30 to impress the onlookers? Is he lying in Citadel to himself, to the readers? Does he change his mind? Say once Thecla joins it, about whether killing her counts, or perhaps in this chapter, has some presentiment of his future and isn't referring to Thecla at all. Perhaps I lean towards the change his mind theory, but I'm not sure, and it's interesting whatever it is. Um, yeah, well, Daniel Baradas uh, suggested that Severian was referring to the initiation feast of St. Catherine, although that was staged. So half lie, half truth. Uh, Ian C. Smith aye, aye, Mr. Smith, said, technically he's wrong both times. 
I won't say lying because I think the second is a memory issue. First time, he's speaking as a young man who feels guilty that he's responsible for Thecla's death, but in the second, he's also Thecla, who definitely killed herself. Honestly, Craig, I think this is a matter of context. In the first instance, Severian has never actually executed anyone. He's asked if he ever killed a woman, and he thinks, well, technically. But by the time he gets to Citadel, he's actually executed a lot of people, and he knows that technically is not at all the same thing. I offered my own answer in that one. <laughs> yeah, let's hear and that. Frug liked it, so therefore I feel vindicated. But um, <laughs> just that it's timing. When he says it first, he's only killed Thecla. When he says it the second time, Thecla's alive in him, so that cancels out, but then he's killed Merwina. So one. Yeah. One plus one minus one. Yeah. It's a math problem. <laughs> Satisfied me because it came from my brain. So Severian's yeah. always been good at math. So <laughs> let's see the next point. Hathor's sex doll reminds me of the toy theater, particularly the use of the word box for where the puppet lies. Did hmm. Hathor take his second best pair of shoes before he went out to the ship and climbed into his own little box? Okay, probably not, but it's an echo, at least. Yeah, I think it's not just an echo. There are a lot of puppets in the solar cycle. In Earth, a new sun, Severian refers to his body, himself, as a marionette of the new sun star. Silk is a clockwork figure and thinks about first love music box. Horn plays with a marionette and cries when his mother works it better than he does. That's a good catch, because the word box can work in so many cool ways, just like the word ship does. Yes. In, yeah. In here. So yeah, that's really cool. Now I want to go do a search on every time box comes up. And because <laughs> now, I mean, seriously, you can find cool stuff with ship in the way that right. Severian and Jonas sort of play with that. And Jonas intentionally doesn't correct him when he says mm -hmm. certain things. And yeah, so maybe box as well. And maybe that would help us know a little bit more about what the paracoida was. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. That's a, I'm making notes. That's a really <laughs> project now. Let's see, next point. Uh, the whole episode, and maybe the last, Craig has been adopting all sorts of wild theories while James has been writing things off as not meaning much. Y'all been hitting the Alzabo juice too hard at the bar after work or something? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I didn't at the time remember exactly what Stephen was referring to. I did went, go back and listen to the episode. And yeah, you are getting more into theory spinning. That much is definitely true. It's all the gaslighting. <laughs> it's having an effect on you. Well, also, I think I'm changing a little <laughs> bit, too. I am adopting more of your perspective for skepticism towards theories that don't have a bigger value to the plot itself. Yeah. I also, you know, if, I'm, if I sound skeptical, I, I recognize that I see this as primarily a detective noir slash a science fiction genre and less as a fantasy story. So I'm, I tend to not find particularly valuable to me, uh, metaphorical explanations. I tend to expect and want and look for and prefer explanations that have a plot driven element to them. And so you know, the, the, the claw acting in a magical way, I'm not so yeah, I'm not so happy about that. I think it ought to have some sort of scientific reason for that I could I mean not 
real science, but science, science fiction y science that explains how things are working. And just an explanation, well, you know, it's a metaphor for this and that. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can see it that way. But I think on almost all circumstances, it's there's a a reason, <laughs> a larger reason for why uh, he's saying weird things. Plus, we've been talking for like two years almost, right? So it'd be a kind of a shame if we hadn't had. Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> In the next point, he says, I think James was wrong to dismiss the philosophy as a filler. This is where I, I the, the, the ending of chapter 30, uh, there's this whole long passage where Severian talks about the events of the torture. And I felt like I could see that Wolf had seen that this chapter was just a little too short and wanted to provide some really good writing to fatten it up. And Stephen says, I think that at worst, it's philosophy that makes sense on a first read rather than a fourth one. And it's not some subtle hint that the first Severian was really Zadkiel's valet or something, whatever, but rather, as Craig says, a young man psyching himself up to do a thing he has been trained to do and has never done and is desperate to do, but also uncertain about. And it's an important step in a book where the morality of execution, which Severian will defend again early in the sword and then renounce in Citadel before performing it on a global scale on Earth. It's a crucial thing. And I think James <laughs> underrates this passage, which is powerful and necessary. And I think I already said my piece because I was like, <laughs> yes, I agree with Frug on that part. But the other, only other thing I'd add about that at this point is that it's also a very sort of Proust moment. Um, where this yes. is definitely something happening and then reflecting on all the things that I used to think and how I'm changing now and both style and content. It is definitely a Proust like chapter. And also, you know, the way we read this, when I'm reading passages like this, I'm always thinking, how does this clarify something we've already seen or how does it foreshadow something we will see in this case, I think, and I think we both agree at least on this, that this is a passage that is important only at this moment in the present of the story. Yeah, he's not like stating his philosophy or all time on capital punishment or right. whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That I that I I totally agree. But I will say too, I certainly don't I hope it's obvious, but I certainly don't dismiss your approach to this as well, because that's one reason why I think this works so well is that you really push on the plot. And with Wolf, I think you absolutely have to, because that stuff is there in places where you don't necessarily think of it. And it's it's too much of a danger reading Wolf to go too far in one way or the other to either say, right. oh, there's no puzzles. It's all metaphor or to say, well, you know, that's a hard puzzle. Let's just let's just do the metaphor thing. You know, I think right. the, the fun thing about Wolf is not knowing where that line is and always finding it crossed and coming and doing different surprises on you all the time. Yeah, well, that's part of the joy for me. Well, yeah, obviously I agree, but I'm incorrigible in that way. So <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's not out of the ordinary for for a Wolf to go, you know, both ways at once. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, Stephen thinks that we overrate the bad sex scene. <laughs> he says um even if it's intentional that we now have some marty mcfly with his mom feeling about it now that we uh, know who dorcas really is and that doesn't make it not a bad sex scene <laughs> actually he says i would put forward as a tentative hypothesis that wolf a brilliant writer in so very many ways 
was simply lousy at writing sex scenes. I still think that reference to the protagonist's tree in a story by John V. Marsh was cringeworthy, and that that's true even if the tree is in fact some complex hint about the life cycle of the shadow children. Hmm. I'm quoting from a, a scarred memory. I think Wolf just wrote bad sex scenes, and this is one of them. Did Wolf ever write a good sex scene? Honest question. I can't <laughs> think of one, but I might be forgetting something, and I haven't read every book that the man wrote. Um, I honestly can't remember any that I would uh, rank up there. Obviously, um, I, on the other hand, I, I don't peruse a lot of erotic literature, so what would I know? This reminds me of, um, it was either the, was it the New Yorker? Shoot. It was one of those sort of high profile quote unquote literary magazines, but they do a contest or did a contest every year for submissions of the worst sex scenes in books that have been published that year. I don't <laughs> think they asked for original ones or maybe they did. And it was like in the style of something, but I think, right. I, I think what it was, was like, people submit the worst written sex scenes in whatever they're reading throughout the year. And then they have a contest. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, I went to looking up that and I, I read that in the re most recent article that came up in, in Google was that JK Rowling's uh, you know recent novel just barely avoided getting on the list. But Tom Wolfe, uh, actually got on there. So, and I remember there's a passage in Don DeLillo's white noise where the main guy and his wife are in bed and they're reading or something. And they have this whole conversation about how awful like sex scenes are written by anybody. And yeah, it's yeah. just this really cool sort of thing. Cause of course they're lying in bed talking. Yeah. Well, the thing about sex scenes is that it's a very personal private act. Mm-hmm being carefully described. And I realize it's this is a, maybe a little over top because they're, they're not the same thing. However, just imagine a careful literary description of someone sitting on the toilet. Also, a very normal human thing to do, common thing to do, very private, and not something that it's easy to say something original yeah. about. Yeah. This is where talking to Samuel Delaney would have been fun. Yes. Oh, yes. yeah. We should talk about. Ideas. We should have him. We should just get a list of all the sex scenes in Wolf, and we could talk about sex scenes and in his books and in Wolf books. Maybe he would be interested. That, in that. might be I, a way to get him interested. Yeah. 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 Not making fun of him, actually, but I, I haven't read a whole lot of his like erotica books. I've read parts of them, but I've never actually read through the whole thing. But even in his regular novels, he's got pretty good thoughtful because he he has this nice balance of. Like, I'm not going to shy away from anything, but I'm also not going to get like super self-conscious about, I don't know, going into too much detail or too little detail or trying to be cool about it. He's just, he's very straightforward. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. As I recall, what I said about this was, perhaps I'm the one guilty of rating it too highly. I said, I've read worse. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, definitely. Uh, which is which is true, and you can get really bad on these for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, the issue of whether the um, the tree reference in the the fifth head of Cerberus, where you know he has a he's having describing having sex with a woman out in the back of the beyond, and he mentions his tree. Uh, I, I have always read that as being intentionally read much more literal than 
uh, most people probably do. They read it metaphorically. Gotcha. Uh, in which case, it is very bad. And whereas I think it's somewhat forgivable and interesting. It, maybe it's still cringeworthy. I don't know. It, it, sex scenes are cringeworthy. I admit that. <laughs> I'm sure not too many people want to hear too boring middle-aged guys talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, that would really be bad. But <laughs> in a book like this, it would be very hard. You know, there's, a, there's a setting for erotic sex scenes, mm -hmm. and this book is not it. You know, when you, have, when you have a book where people are being regularly used archetypically, that's not a place for a tender, emotional moment of a sex scene. Right. Could be. Yeah. Like you yeah. said, if it is, if it does become too personal and we're kind of being uh, persuaded not to or pushed to see these people in a different light, as right. figures or characters rather than people, then yeah. But I could say, you know, I've more and more kind of thought that Samuel R. Delaney's Nova, I think that it was very influential in people providing an op a place for Wolf's style of fiction. And I think it might have also influenced Wolf's style of fiction, in which case, you know, putting in some sex might have been an literary homage to Delaney himself. Not, not the stories himself, but just the need to put this story of this type, this literary new wave story ought to have a sex mm -hmm. scene because that it's where it belongs. It will be. And finally, he says, complaints notwithstanding, I love this show from the marvelous sponsorship commercials to the outro music and beyond. I'd say keep up the good work, but y'all are quite clearly are keeping up the good work. Indeed, have for many chapters ahead of where I am. It is rather I, the listener, who am shamefully falling down. Yes, well, you are disappointing us, Stephen. But... <laughs> Mainly just because you write such good responses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we look forward to your corrections and responses and elaborations. So, yeah, please keep that up. There. Does that mutual back and forth of praise count as a sex scene? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, if so, it's the finest one I've ever read. <laughs> on YouTube, we get a lot of people enjoying the podcast on their first read. And this is completely allowed. I, I warn you about spoilers. As long as you're fine with that, it's cool. Myself, I don't mind spoilers ever. I'm more interested in how the writer or creator is pulling off what he's doing than being surprised by what he does. Jake has been working his way through the episodes on YouTube. He's not convinced that Moena is guilty. We're running out of YouTube episodes for him. So you need to get on it, Craig. I know that's that's my fault. I yeah. <laughs> I thought I had an easy solution, and then technical reasons and whatever. No, yeah. no, I, I'll do. Yeah. That. Well, there you'll just have to accept that. He also says, "I am concerned this book is going to ruin reading for me. Everything else will be too straightforward, simple, and boring." Tom. L.A. Books says, wow, what an ambitious and wonderful project. Thank you both. I just finished my first read of the first book, so I have a lot to go. And your comments are very useful. 242 Sighting likes my fifth head of Cerberus theory. Thank you for your clear-sighted insight, 242 Sighting. <laughs> Nicholas Bilek, I guess that's right. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I'll have Craig edit the episode. After listening to the episode on chapter two of Shadow Thinks the Body in the Necropolis that Vodalus and company are digging up is Thecla. He says that Severian has moved into the future after Thecla has died. He sees the 
ability to walk temporarily into different times, as in the botanic gardens and the atrium time is fitting with this. And I responded that I like the theory a lot, but it has problems for all the reasons that we've given before. And he says, however, it's notable that when Vodalus first meets Severian in Claw, one of the first things he does is to ask Severian how long it's been since their last meeting, which is an odd thing to ask if it's only been two weeks. It might be more understandable if the young man you saw two weeks ago has noticeably aged. Severian's reply is interesting because he says, long enough. That's a good point. Yeah, it's so funny. We we tried to use that part as a way to kind of answer that question, and the more people offer ways to interpret it, the less confident I am. <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah I, th I think I agree, you know. And also the fact that traveling casually through portals of time in the uh, in the Botanic Gardens, in the mirrors, in the, atri in the tunnels, uh, which I, I know that you're less convinced of that, but still, I, I, it's notable that that is pretty well established in this world. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mark Zwander has some interesting ideas about the connection between the Book of the New Sun and Norse mythology. I don't think anyone can deny that that is there. He says, I am still plowing my way through these incredible books, and I couldn't stop myself from listening to your amazing podcast right after finishing Shadow. I think I can elaborate on this point much more later, but there is a lot of old Norse mythology at the center of this narrative, I think, especially the connection of the Averns with the concept of Eiter. So, Craig, Eiter is the original substance of the world. Emer, the giant, was born from Eiter, and Emer's body was what was used to make the world. Eiter is produced by the Midgard serpent, as well as all other serpents. It translates to poisonous, evil, or sinister. It's interesting that the material that made the world was made from this stuff. But he continues. First of all, according to Wikipedia, the river Gyal originates from the wellspring, from where all waters come and flows through the primordial void into the world of existence. The wellspring is located in a realm of Niflheim, where an abundance of snakes in the water produce a substance called eiter, which is both the source of life and also highly poisonous and probably responsible for the freezing over of the waters, thus denying life. This is solved by the effect of the fire realm, Muspelheim. One of the snakes producing this poison is also the Midgard serpent, he says, who, which is an Ouroboros. Uh, remember the ocean surrounding the Commonwealth continent is called Ouroboros. And anyway, so Nicholas goes on, this is probably old news, but I have yet to find some theories including these. Point me towards them if you want me to do more favors aside from producing what might be the best podcast I have ever listened to. Thanks. All I'm going to say there, because there's a lot to go on, is that maybe you should stop reading New Sun and go start Read Wizard Night, because, I mean, oh, yeah. kind of yeah. not joking. I mean, just from the sheer names alone, you're going to... Have a it definitely more yeah you'll but love no, that it's it's there it's um in fact what was it ah oh, shoot was it the fates was it the norse names for the fates well yeah we well, look, earth for thandi skull that's those what are, it was. yeah that yeah. right yeah in book of the new sun those are norse norns and there was a thread on the earth list connecting master ash to asker and embla the norse adam and eve aska means ash tree so there's a lot there how do you spell that the creator is it emer uh, Y-M-I-R. 
That just makes me think of Yamar. Oh, the creator. Oh, oh, oh. oh. I mean, just like if that's an A, if that's how you spell that, and then the first Autark's name is Y M A R. Oh, 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 something of a founder. Oh, yeah, Imar, Imar. That's yeah. yeah, That's wow. I had never drawn that connection. Imar to Emir. Yeah, that's another Norse connection. That's good. Good. You keep the crooks and charlatans and business babe. We also have five new master level patrons we need to thank, so here are your new tags. And since we haven't explained it in a while, when you sign up for Patreon at the master level, which is $5 per month, we'll make a special tag to be played anytime we mention your comments on social media or Reddit or email or anything like that. So here are the newly named masters. Evan Moore. Today I think I love you even more. Charlotte Lansky. Charlotte. David Dines. One dime. Sudana. And Jeremy Sheets. And we already played his tag because he commented this week. Sharing our love between the sheets. Okay, so uh, Severian has successfully escaped the Notchwools, and he's now moving forward into an encounter with the Ulan himself and also others. A lot of weird associations in this chapter. Chapter 13, The Claw of the Conciliator. Ah, The Claw of the Conciliator. Here we get every volume has a chapter of its own title. And this is this one. Title track. Yeah, yes, exactly. And it's not any farther from the center of the book than the Shadow of the Torturer was. Mm-hmm. So Just different side, right? Right. Shadow yeah. was more A little bit earlier. Yeah. Right. And this one, I got to say, is this is one of the chapters that is just one of the more, in strange ways, beautiful chapters. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of weird things happen. I mean, like the last one, you had the fun adventure with the Notchules, and that's just... That's just some good sword and sorcery action. But here, things get strange. I mean, it's it's kind of funny because I was reading it this time, looking for all the sort of puzzle things and whatnot. But I had to step back for a second and be like, no, this is a this is a surreal, dense chapter with images and strangeness. And it was just kind of cool because I was like, yeah, it's this is this is one to step back from and just appreciate for the And frankly, a lot of fishy behavior. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, so time has gotten iffy now. We're five or six days into this volume. It's been that long since Severian woke up dreaming of Moena. Severian and Jonas have been on the road traveling to House Absolute for probably four days, I think. And that's my guess. It could be a day less, but I think, you know, this is the fifth day at noon since Severian left Votalis's camp and seven days since the volume started. So by my estimation, mm-hmm. if Severian left the tower on Sunday afternoon, it's now Friday of the following week, give or take one or two days. They've been on the run from the bat-like notules. Severian ran until he found an Ulan, which diverted the notules and took him down. It both got the notules off their tail and cleared the way a bit for them to proceed to the House Absolute, which is their goal. So now they're standing over the Ulan's body. 
Uh, have we said what an Ulan is? It's a it's an 18th century cavalryman uh, from the Polish term for lancer, so it fits. And here's something: the Polish term for lancer comes from the Turkish word "oglan" for youth, which makes it a parallel to the word "infantry." Infantry for oh. from the French for youth. I mean, that doesn't mean anything, but it's interesting that it's a perfect cavalry alternative to infantry. Interesting. So, standing over the Ulan, Severian says something interesting to start this chapter. <laughs> Great way to start off a lot of yeah. in this book. resurrection <laughs> and death. Either way. Yep. Right, right. And it is significant because that is the name of a chapter in Shadow of the Torturer, the one where Severian right. duels with Agalus. I confess that I seek symmetry in this novel as much as Robert Borsky did, and it would make me happy in a way if it turned out that this Ulan is somehow an original version of Agalus. But other than, you know, the pleasing symmetry of it, I don't get anything. Well, I mean, the one thing that I the, I felt like it was intentional just because this is also the one where we get the claw acting, right? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. it acted in the Is He Dead chapter, or was it right before? Is, is He Dead? Well, I mean... So, but, but it's yeah. the same point, right? It's the same thing. And and it, so it's a cool, it's a cool callback. Right, yeah, sure. And Jonas responds that, yes, the Ulan is dead. He just nods, but he doesn't seem unsure about it. Severian was just going to ride away, but Jonas waves for him to get off his mount and see what they have. It's a little teaching moment for the young torturer. They've kind of fallen into a father-son relationship today. Up till now, it's it's been a servant-hanger-on relationship. But now that I think about it, it wasn't so different from the way Haythor seems to view himself and Severian. That's a good point. I hadn't actually made that connection, though, before, but Hether is a kind of... Yeah, he's always like, I'm your servant. I'll follow you anywhere. I'll do what you say. Right. Jonas mm -hmm. kind of acts very similarly, right? He's not so not so much of a sycophant or anything like that, but he's definitely being that way. Yeah. Huh. He, he, def he, he quickly became his servant for no particular reason. Yeah. He says, we may be able to destroy those things so they can't be flown against us again or be used to harm anyone else. Jonas explains that he wants to destroy the nostrils so that they can't be used again for assassination. He has no doubt, it seems, that someone did set them loose, that they have a keeper. And in fact, his words sort of imply he believes they were sent against them, at least maybe against them in particular and deliberately. Yeah. And we, I mean, we talked about last time how what he knows them from are where the people in other ports would set them loose on ritual murders. Right, exactly. So, yeah, so no idea what that means. Right, yeah. but they're so they're intentionally put on them. Yeah, right. And Jonas explains that they can be safely handled now because they are sated; their appetites are satisfied. They've got all the heat that they can consume right now, and if you tear them, they lose heat and become dangerous again. So he says, "I, I, I can only imagine that if they're you know at their." really hungry stage they probably touching them maybe feels like touching you know um nitrous oxide or something like that so hmm. you know it's like uh liquid nitrogen or something hmm. i don't know why i always imagine them feeling like fruit loops or not, <laughs> no 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 not fruit loops the uh, what <laughs> uh the gummy paper that i used to eat oh the, the little 80s. gummy thing uh, uh, yeah what were those fruit roll-ups yeah. there you go fruit roll-ups yeah yeah like deadly fruit roll-ups yeah <laughs> But you couldn't handle these, right? He says you can't even handle them if they were hungry. Right. So he says, 
we need something to put them in, something watertight of metal or glass. So it appears that if water could seep out, the nodules could too. Severian doesn't have a container like that, nor does Jonas. So Jonas searches the Ulan's pockets. While all this is going on, Severian has one of those spidey sense moments. Mm -hmm. He feels like he's in the Cathedral of the Claw again. Mm -hmm. Foreshadowing. (laughs) But it's also just, it's appropriate for what's going to happen. Right. He says, aromatic smoke from the blazing tree wreathed everything like incense. And I had the sensation of being once more in the Cathedral of the Pelerines. The litter of twigs and last summer's leaves on which the Ulan lay might have been the straw-strewn floor. The trunks of the scattered trees, the supporting poles. So Severian, it seems to me, is actually being subliminally prompted to think of the claw. Mm-hmm. And it'll work. He's going to try and use the claw on the Ulan. He hasn't considered using it since the man-apes cave. Yep. And he's never tried to use it on any of the five guys he's killed since this volume began. <laughs> he's being prompted now. Uh, also, I've said many times. When you adopt a theory, you start to see friendly faces in the crowd. And as soon as I considered the convenience that this Ulan could be Agilis, it now occurs to me that the straw the Ulan is metaphorically lying on could also be the straw in Agilis's cell. Interesting. Interesting. And I mean, anyway, Jonas finds a brass vasculum. A vasculum is a cylinder. Usually it has a strap. And it's most commonly used as an airtight container used for collecting plant samples. And that's exactly what the Ulan is using it for. It's full of herbs. In this case, it has a screw top brass lid on one end. So Jonas rolls the Ulan off his back, puts one of the nodules from the Ulan's left nostril very carefully and delicately into the vasculum. Remember, he doesn't want to tear it. It has a consistency of superfine tissue paper, so it's very delicate, but it's completely opaque. Jonas unscrews the top of the vasculum and he dumps out the herbs, and then he puts the nodule in the tube and puts the other one from the right nostril, and he puts it away as well. I don't know what handling the nodule would be like. Like I said, maybe like um, you know, liquid nitrogen or something mm-hmm. like that, the, the touch of something super cooled. And Severian says... One of the Ulan's eyes was half open. I'd seen corpses often before, but I couldn't escape the eerie feeling that he was in some sense watching me, the man who had killed him to save himself. So this guy, no doubt, is really dead. Yep. And remember, Jonas later is going to suggest that, oh, no, he wasn't really dead, but he's already said, no, he's dead. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, He changes his, Jonas changes his mind uh, because that's easier than accepting that the claw is Yeah, unless you know something. Yeah, Yeah, right. Well, Jonas says that the pieces will recombine in the tube. Even going through the woods, they get torn up a little, but they've already healed themselves. But whether or not you remember from last time, there were three by the time Severian got through with them. When Jonas opens Ulan's mouth with his steel hand, the inside is complete bottomless black in the throat. Yeah. So... They stopped up his nose and mouth and suffocated him, and Jonas pulls it out and puts it away. This is one of the few things I think I still remember from reading it the very first time and just having that total creeped out horror movie thing <laughs> that when he opened his mouth and it was just utterly black and just being like, ah, even though I'm I'm pretty sure I immediately thought after that, oh, it's 
you know, it's right. just one of the things, but still just that surprise of seeing what you shouldn't see. It's, yeah. Like a bottomless pit oh, yeah. right inside his mouth. Oh yeah. Right? It's just so cool and horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so Severian suggests that if there hadn't been three, because it was cut twice, if there hadn't been three, then the Ulan could still have survived. It would have been like having a cold with stuffy nose. But Jonas explains that, you know, they would just continue to work their way down into his lungs. He says, we're lucky, actually, to have been able to get to him so quickly. Otherwise, you would have had to slice the body open to get them out. Mm. That's a lot of slicing things open. You were talking about slicing <laughs> the horses open last time. Well, it, is, this guy it is a very special gift. So <laughs> It's true. He probably enjoys the opportunity to show it off. <laughs> That's a Seinfeld reference. <laughs> uh, Craig, I just thought of a way to survive a natural attack. When they come at you... You drop your pants so they go up to reject them. <laughs> and then when they're sated, you can just poop them out. Uh, oh, Jonas needed to be there, James. <laughs> then they, they would have had a much more interesting experience. I have survival skills for the dying earth area. So. <laughs> okay, one, one little more. Um, the word natural. So Jonas doesn't know what they were called by the natives of the planet where they're from. The sailors had a peculiar etymology for the term that doesn't comport with any of the etymologies we've talked about last time. He says they called them nachuals because they usually came after dark when they could not be seen. And the first warning we had was a, like a breath of warmth. I can't find any etymology for a nachual relating to night or evening or breath. Is it possible that Wolf made a mistake and thought the word noctula, which means little owl, was notual for Bill or Node, or I just thought that was an interesting association? Yeah. I mean, you could go slightly conspiracy-ish on it and be like, well, that's just because Wolf translator needed a word, but the real word had something else to do mm, with black. Yeah. That well, possible, it's but always I, available to us, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, there is something with the not knocked. They are very close. Mm -hmm. And so the nocturnal. Could, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's why this probably makes sense to most people. I mean, you yeah. don't, most people aren't going to go mm. look up the etymology for the paper. Right. In that direction. It's going <laughs> to probably just be the, the not and notule. And also, that's interesting. You feel their warmth in the darkness, and that's how you know that you're under an attack. And while he's explaining all he knows about notules he's encountered at, quote, some port where they're used for ritual murders, Severian says, oh, Where is this island? Mm -hmm. And Jonas just kind of looks at him. He looked at me curiously. Yeah, yeah. he's confused. Is it this, I guess he's forgotten for a moment who he's talking to. Either that or he's he's kind of he looks at him curiously because it's like uh, not an island, Severian, but I can't really I can't really <laughs> How explain do I that to you yeah. right now. Yeah. So which is why Severian would interpret that as curiously, because for Jonas, it's a matter of probably a mixture of, oh, you poor thing. Right. And, and like, I just don't know how to explain this right now. Yeah, and Severian would have just no idea that Jonas was not a boat sailor, but mm -hmm. a sailor between the stars. Severian says, is it far from the coast? I've always wanted to see Ouroboros, though I suppose it's dangerous. <laughs> and Ouroboros, of course, is the world snake that encircles the earth. Yeah. In some mythology, it's reasonable to associate it with the Milky Way. But for Severian's purposes, it means the ocean that surrounds his own continent. Yeah, which is still such a cool word for the ocean. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I usually think of Ouroboros would be like a world river that comes around, but to think of the ocean as one, that's even better. Cause it's yeah, just encircling yeah. The, the, the continent. Yeah. It is a weird moment though, for Severian to be like, Oh, I've always wanted to see the coast when they're sitting here with these crazy alien things that just <laughs> yeah. killed a guy and he just led him to his death. It is one of those moments I feel like where Severian is self whatever. I mean, obviously I think Wolf did this to because it's a cool opportunity to let you know something about Jonas being from another mm-hmm. place, time, thing like mm-hmm. that. But but yeah, if he had if Severian had really said that, he was very easily distracted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, yeah, it, well, he just takes, he's like a little kid. He just absorbs anything you say. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. Right. Severian says that they should have kept the nodules and used them as weapons against whoever sent them. After all, you know, if someone's trying to kill them, they'll try again. And indeed, you know, he will. But although it seems impossible to do it, these nodules are trained to obey a handler. And they will never obey Severian and Jonas. And Jonas says, the world is better off without them anyway, as the butcher's wife told him when she cut away his manhood. <laughs> also, there's something here, and I can't figure out what it is, but there's something about uh, Severian being fascinated by the water and thinking of it as this wonderful thing. And then them being right by a river and Jonas drowning these things in it. And I don't know what it is. I just get some sense of there's some kind of, I don't know, metaphorical resonance here between Severian thinking the ocean is some beautiful thing to see and Jonas using it as a place to bury something forever. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, just a weird mix of imagery right there that I think is, is cool. And I don't really know what to do with it, but it just seems to move in a couple different directions at the same time. I wonder how long they can live underneath the water like that. I don't know. And I assume the water's colder. So. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I mean, Jonah seems to think that's going to be good enough to basically get rid of them for at least as long enough as they have to get away. Yeah. Get away, yeah. Then Jonah says, yeah, let's get out of here. Somebody's coming down the road. Uh, oh, I wonder who it could be coming shortly behind these nodules. <laughs> it's two people walking toward them. And I feel confident saying that each of these people are equally mystifying in different ways. Yep. Jonas Destrier is drinking from the river and he gets on it and Severian says, wait, wait. And then a better idea or go on a chain or two and wait for me there. Severian has decided for whatever reason that he wants to be alone with this dead body. Creepy. (laughs) Yeah. He's going to use the claw on it and he's been feeling prompted to do this, I think, ever since he approached the body. But at this point, The prompting is very direct. So he says, I was thinking of the man-ape's bleeding stump, and I seemed to see the dim votive lights of the cathedral hanging, crimson and magenta, among the trees. I reached into my boot, far down where I had pushed it for safety, and drew out the claw. And and as I mentioned in Chapter 8, references like this, and it's not the only one, make me think Severian healed the man-ape's arm with the claw right in front of Agia. It always has at some level. Mm -hmm. It's interesting if true, because Severian never says so directly. It's interesting because he never records Agia remarking on the event. It's meaningful in its contrived obscurity, and it bothers me. It's also, to connect with that, he does it in front of Agia. Here, there are randos coming down the road. And Severian is still like, I'm going to try this. Like he makes Jonas go away, Mm -hmm. but 
he I guess they're still far away. He knows they're coming, but Yeah, I guess so. I guess yeah. so. It just it's it, it's still the other thing about that is just that he's so so wants to try this. And two, he feels guilty. I mean, he he talks about how he feels guilty about having done this. But, you know, it's almost like he's in a trance. Like Jonas is definitely like, uh, people are coming. We got to get out of here. We're close to House Absolute and whatnot. But Sarian's yeah. still going to take the time to try this. Severian says it's the first time he's ever taken the claw out in full sunlight. It's either been in his room, laying on the bed, or, you know, at night. He's always been very keen to keep it away from prying eyes. It was the first time I had seen it by full daylight. It caught the sun and flashed like a new sun itself. Not blue only, but with every other color from violet to cyan. Remember that the claw is not an amazing, valuable gem. It's merely a common thorn encased in some material that's fragile enough that it breaks when it hits the rocks outside of Baldander's towers. It's sparkling due to Severian's blood on it. That it reacts this way in sunshine, as Severian supposes, is meaningful in the cosmological sense in which Wolf is creating mythology in his stories, as in you know, Hamlet's Mill and Giorgio de Santillana prompted science fiction writers to do. Severian's thorn, this curved holy relic, like his coin, like Latro's divinely blessed curved sword in Soldier of the Mist, like Cronus's scythe, like the phalange sword of Hermes and Pericles, who used it to, in turn to cut off the heads of Argos and Medusa, and the phalange that's carried by the, by the student in the tale of the student and his son. This thorn is, in a sense, the sun itself that's slowly passing through the constellations, passes through the gates of the seasons. And when it passes through a new constellation, that key moment of a season, it heralds a new sun. And when Severian says it flashed like the new sun itself, this is also appropriate because it shines due to Severian's blood on it. The shine literally is from the new sun. And if you believe as I do, that it's the blood of the Severian of a previous universe iteration who's already brought the new sun, then this is literally currently part of the physical new sun. Or if you reject that and it shines because Severian will be the new sun, of course, then why doesn't all Severian's blood shine? I'm not going to fight that out here. Stop it. <laughs> anyway, there's a lot metaphorically and sci-fi plot-wise in this little event. Yeah. Yeah. So one question, when you say it doesn't shine and, and you're saying it's not a gem, I still thought, or at least I imagine the material being like faceted, at least like that. I, mean, I don't know that it's necessarily faceted. It, it's, it could be, but it's really, it's just a little translucent material. And I'm not even certain it is. I don't, should I, we do a search and find out whether I, I can find a faceted? And honestly, the only reason I'm asking is because I'm reading this right now and trying to see yours. If you say it. Yeah, when I was saying that, I, I really don't recall any event time where it's said to be faceted. Let me look at look up for the word facet right now because okay. I have each of these books. And the only reason I was wondering is because I'm I'm reading it over again, and when you say it shines because it has Severian's blood on it, we we know it has the the blood from when he pricks his finger much later, but. Are you saying that he there's like fresh blood on it right now? And no, it's got it's, it's literally has Severian's blood on it because just in the in the previous universe, same thing happened. Severian takes it, plucks his thumb right, on a thorn. Right. He gets blood on it. 
Right. He carries it to the next universe, Severian's universe, our Severian's universe, and now it's it's got the blood on it of the new sun. Gotcha. So, because I guess I guess we're, maybe we're splitting hairs here, but I was thinking because like when he gets blood on the thorn later, it's blood on the actual little sliver, right? It's not it's not blood on the outside of whatever material it's it's hanging there. But but you're saying then it, that it's the reason it shines and gives light is, is primarily the quote unquote magic of Severian's blood. Yeah. Yeah. If yeah. it's, it, you can say it's magic or if you want to, if, or if you see this as more of a sci-fi story right, as right. I do, then it's that blue light that's has, that's associated with father and Neri's right, mirrors. Right. So I'm just thinking, I've always thought of it more as a mix. Like the, the blood is what of course gives it its, its power, its special properties, but also that something about, the gemishness of it, the faceted translucent material gives it mundane kind of flickeriness, <laughs> I guess I would say. Uh, whereas what you're describing is more like um, it only is that quote unquote magical light. Right, sure. shine. In, okay. in Sword of the Lictor, when he finally finds the thorn, he, he says it is kind of gleaming with this mm-hmm. iridescent glow. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's just it, it's an interesting question of how to picture it. And and honestly, now, once you say that, then I'm kind of like, oh, I don't I'm trying to think does. OK, it I just did a gem? search of of the um, Shadow of the Torture Claw and um, Sword of Lictor. And okay. although uh, Wolf uses the word faceted and faceted a lot, he never uses it to apply to the Claw of the Conciliator. But he calls it a gem, right? There yeah, are times, yeah. okay. But there, I mean, it could be there are smooth gems, right? True. They aren't all. It could be an uncut gem. It could true. Be, no, very true. No, I'm just sitting here, maybe thinking, maybe Wolf doesn't ever specifically describe what it is, and it depends on what you think gem yeah. means. That's interesting, though. No, it's I mean, the size of a coin. That's all mm-hmm. we know. Yeah, and no, I'm not not at all saying you're wrong. I'm saying I just I always thought of it more like a traditional gem. Mm-hmm. interesting okay now I'm, I'm gonna go have to do some searching later but cool no that's just interesting because i think the way that i had always imagined it there would always be a little bit of shine just from the natural gemness of the material or whatever but then the light actually comes from yeah from the from the connection to right Sibirian. from the connection which is why it gleams but you know if you read this you're reading this casually he calls always calls it a gem and then he talks about how it gleams. And mm-hmm. on our first read, there's no reason why you would assume that it's not just sparkling in the, mm-hmm. oh, in yeah. the moonlight or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Severian puts the claw shining on Ulan's forehead and tries to will him alive. It's going to work here. Spoiler. It won't always work, which will puzzle Severian continuously throughout this novel and part of the next. Not just Severian, too. Yeah, bother us and loads (laughs) and loads of redditors and Facebook people and Earth listeners. You're right. But Jonas is impatient. Come on, what are you doing? Uh, Severian's not 100% sure what he's doing or how to explain what he's doing, but he's acting with purpose. Now, remember, the Ulan was dead. Severian had seen corpses before. He knew he was dead, not just sleeping. But something has already started happening that Jonas can see because Jonas calls to Severian, he's not quite dead yet. Get off the road before he finds his lands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 
So I assume he's already seen him moving, and it's kind of amazing that he jumped to that conclusion so quickly that the Ulan was just knocked out and that he was going to be shortly in any shape to rush for his weapon and use it. And incidentally, no one ever considers using the Ulan's lance as a weapon themselves. I wonder if they're you know, the only ones who can actually use these lances. Yeah, it's a good point that it seems like it's a powerful thing here that they could definitely use, but... But I don't know, unless to you, they're going into the house absolute. And if you show up with the guard's weapon, yeah, that <laughs> could look bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, in Severian's dream memory of the Ulans at the end of Piteous Gate, where there were five of them, more alike than brothers, that suggests the possibility that the Ulans are all clones generated by the Commonwealth state. Maybe only an Ulan, like I said, any Ulan can use any lance, but no one else can use lances, what hmm. I'm thinking. Yeah. If they're clones, then you can have all kinds of right. all kinds of stuff like that come up from it. Yeah. So anyway, rather than hang around to help Severian with this potentially dangerous Ulan, Jonas lashes his Destrier with the reins and rides off. We haven't known Jonas for long, but that seems very un-Jonas-like. Maybe him being so anxious for Severian to leave doesn't have a lot to do with the Ulan. Maybe, just maybe... Jonas is actually aware that Hathor is a later or earlier version of himself. Maybe he doesn't want the same thing to happen that happened when Severian gets close to another temporal version of himself at the end of this volume, when Severian encounters the head of the day. I don't know. I mean, no, I'm just I'm, really, I'm spinning theories left oh, and yeah. right here. But this is one of the things I definitely wanted to talk about is the, the fact that Heather and Jonas do a Superman Clark Kent thing mm -hmm. all the time. Like one is off stage and the other comes on and that always happens. And this is the first time that I think it's really called out. And yeah, as I read it, Jonas didn't seem to have any worry at all about the Ulani hung around through the thing in the lake and was only like, let's go when other people showed up. Right. And now he's all worried. He's not dead yet. He's going to get him. So maybe even it could even be that Jonas doesn't, know that he's waking up or something yeah. but it's just an excuse to get severian to move so that they can get away from sure. could yeah. be. but again we're assuming a lot about jonas knowing who heather is and why he can't be with him right yeah but literally if this was a stage play you could have the same person play jonas and heather mm -hmm. or and this is this is another possibility it's not heather but it's the other guy um, and the reason I say that is because we talked about all the ways that mm -hmm. Heather and Severian are similar and this rando buddy of his, but <laughs> I always never, I never know how to pronounce his name. Buzek. Buzek. Um, he sort of is here for just a short while and then disappears just like Jonas is here for a short while. And right. Yeah. Disappears. And also this little dude disappears in a strange, surreal way, just like Jonas disappears. Yes. Um, and so that's what I was wondering more too, if this, if it's more different versions of the two of them and Jonas is just aware of something being sure. off. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah. So maybe uh, Jonas and Hithor, I don't know. Maybe they're trying to keep away from each other. I don't know. Yeah. I know for a fact that there's something weird that either Heather or Jonas or both of them definitely seem to want to not be in the same place together, right. but I have no idea why. <laughs> yeah, that's. Just, I mean, it seems to me absolutely clear now that that is something that's going on, but the reasons why, I don't know. 
Yeah. And sure enough, as soon as Jonas leaves, Severian hears, Master, Master, mm -hmm. and one of the travelers waves an arm and both begin to run. And of course, he knows right away who it is. It's Hathor showing up just after the strange appearance of the Notch Wolves and after Jonas absences himself from the scene. Severian says, It's Hathor, <laughs> but Jonas <laughs> is gone. It's like a scene from Batman. Yeah. And mm -hmm. he looks down at the Ulan. And what was it, a corpse a bit ago? It, now both the eyes are open and he's breathing. Yep. And Severian plucks the claw from the Ulan's forehead and put it back in his boot. And then he shouts for Hathor and the guy with him to get off the road, you know, because it's not allowed. And we have an Ulan here and he might attack him. But they aren't paying attention. Uh, Ulan says, who are you? Because like Dorcas, after her resurrection, the Ulan has major amnesia. And if we're going with the theory that Severian is actually pulling a person from another universe over the dead body, like a fish from Aenerys' mirrors, remember that was my explanation of how Dorcas looked in the water of the Lake of Birds and, and mm -hmm. seeing a hyacinth where there was no hyacinth, reached out and plucked it, and suddenly there was a hyacinth. So if that's happening in this case, Severian has pulled a guy who has maybe no memory of Severian or of the recent events, so the Ulan, we're going to find out his name is Cornet Minius. And he asks, who are you? And Severian says, a friend. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I just had you killed. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, he did resurrect him. So I suppose that's technically true. Yeah. But it's a lot more complicated. And if you believe, as I do, and as Mark often says, but um, it, I have to continually fight with him in order to get him to remember and uh, that this is so. If you believe that everything in this book is true, is it possible that Severian and the Ulan in some other world are friends? You see how easy it was with the first Severian to solve all these big questions? <laughs> the other thing, too, I want to emphasize is that, yeah, the guy doesn't have memory when he wakes up. And mm -hmm. just like Dorcas doesn't have memory, this guy doesn't. The reason that's really significant to me is that I still believe that Thecla really has in some sense been resurrected inside Severian, but she has all of her memories. Yes. And yes. I don't know if that's because, I mean, she is nothing but memories basically, but, um, but I don't know if that's because he actually got to ingest her body or something, but it's a very different situation. And it's the one big exception is seems like is that Thecla can remember things. And the other times that Severian tries to use the thing, they don't remember. Yeah. Oh, so do you, do you think that the reason that Severian's relationship with Thecla is different from the other Vodalari is the effect of the claw? It could be. I mean, if you think it, yeah, and this is where we don't know exactly what it is, but if it's something about the claw, then he's resurrecting her and it's not so much his memory that gives her life in him mm -hmm. again, which is how we've been talking about it this whole time. But maybe it is whatever it is about the power of the claw. Yeah, uh, sure. So very, um, if that's the case, though, why then wouldn't the other people have memory? Right. Is it, yeah. is it something about the physical eating of a person or is it just give you more? I don't know. I mean, because the whole yeah. body of these people is here. Right. I mean, by that same sort of logic, they should still have their memories. Right. Because they're yeah. they're they got they don't just have a little bite of themselves. They have the whole <laughs> thing. But yeah. And that's that's something we didn't bring up before when we were talking about Thecla. Like, is it 
I think we both kind of just kept assuming, oh, it's all about it's Severian's memory that lets her come to life again, again. but it could have been the claw. Yeah, maybe it's. I mean, part of the thing with the Alzabo is that it is resurrecting these memories anyway, and maybe the claw is just supercharging mm. it to make it. Yeah, or maybe the claw is actually just making them come to life rather right. than just the memories. Yeah. Right. Well, let's see. Uh, Cornet Minius is still weak, but he tries to get up, and Severian helps him to do that. There's no way Jonas's fears were justified. And the Ulan just stares around at everything. He's frightened by the Destriers, even his own Destrier. So even if I'm right, the amnesia is not due to being pulled from somewhere else because, you know, he would have knowledge of Destriers, wherever he came from. Mm Mm-hmm. He just doesn't know anything. And he finally says, what is this place? And Severian says, only a stretch of the old road beside the guile. It's not obvious how much that makes sense to Ulan. He just shakes his head and puts his hands to his head. Mm -hmm. St. Minius was Florence's first Christian martyr. He traveled to Rome from Greece around the year 250 and then went to become a hermit living in a cave. He ended up getting beheaded, and according to legend, like the green man, he picked up his head and put it back on his shoulders and went back to his cave to die. There's an 11th century basilica now where his cave was. All the great masters have done work on the interior. Gotti, Aretino, Manetti, Della Robbio, but I've said that wrong. Rosalino, the, the cemetery enclosure was constructed by Michelangelo in 1529. The cemetery has the grave of Carlo Collati, who wrote the story of Pinocchio. Puns from the name, uh, Minus, uh, that's no help. Minabird, nope. It's a resurrected saint, and that makes sense at least. So, all right, Hathor comes trotting up to Severian as he's helping the Ulan to his feet. He's out of breath. Severian says he's like, quote, an ill-bred dog that has run when called and now expects to be petted for it. The guy with him, like we said, whose name is Buzik, is about 100 feet behind him. He's wearing gaudy clothes and a greasy look of a small traitor. Now, Hathor can summon the creatures with his sails, but, Craig, can he command a nodule? I'm not so sure about that. I wouldn't think so. Buzak, like we said, is his own man of mystery. Maybe Hathor summoned Buzak himself from his mirrors. Maybe he's the natural adept that Jonas was referring to. Uh, you know, Yeah, who knows? Because, I mean, the salamander doesn't seem like it's really under Hathor's control at all. It's just like he sets it loose. No. Um, the nachuals right. do seem to be controlling it just Going after going them. after them. Yeah, they're going after yeah. specifically. Um, Which at least the question, maybe Buzek is working for someone else to assassinate Severian. Yeah, and I don't know. that's yeah, why they're know. Buzek together. is one of the most confusing things to me about this book. Like I I literally have just at the basic level, no idea why Wolf puts him in here and what he serves because he disappears so quickly too. Like he's just not even on a basic surface story level. He seems to serve no purpose at all, right? There's no reason he doesn't even do anything except create a very weird, surreal, awkward moment for Severian in a closet (laughs) later (laughs) on, right? That's, that's his one big action that he has. Um, 
Otherwise, well, it's a good thing we don't have any first time listeners. Listen, right. <laughs> beware the closet. But no, that <laughs> seriously is one of the strangest parts of this that doesn't even seem to me to really serve any surface purpose. Yes, yeah, it's very so, particular. So yeah, I don't know. But but just on that point, even if we take the chaos at the piteous gate to be Heather, it seems not very directed, right? It's more like Heather just kind of. If he did let some creature loose there, all it did was cause chaos. It's not like it right. was set specific. Yeah, he's literally just a chaos master. Yeah. That's what he does. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Yep. yep. But yeah, he would have to, I mean, think about it. He would have to summon a Notchul and then use his special, you know, Notchul whispering powers to train it to go after Severian. I don't know. Yeah. But no, that suggestion about maybe he's the guy controlling the nodules or something. I mean, mm -hmm. since Jonas did say, you know, they're used by specific people to do something, that's the best textual connection to what Buzek could possibly be that I know. <laughs> I mean, like that, <laughs> and that's it. And even that seems kind of flimsy. So I yeah. don't know. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So St. Buzek or St. Budak was a saint of Brittany. Like St. Gerlo, he has at least an interesting legend which is more than you know, many of the other saint names do. His pregnant mother was accused of infidelity by her stepmother and pushed into the English Channel in a box. And she came ashore in Ireland and gave birth. It's the uh, Moses and Mordred story mm. with a twist. It echoes other Greek myths. The name is postulated to mean saved from waters, but it might just mean victory. So I don't see how any of this helps us untangle Busek. Just thinking, if the nodules were his creatures, they got thrown in the river. Yeah, he's yeah, he has uh, no no other job now. That's a stretch. Yeah, yeah, I don't. Oh, know. that's a good point. Yeah, pulled out of the water. That's yeah. a good idea. Yeah, but that's kind of the opposite. I don't know, but if nothing else, it's a weird name, right? It's a it's a cool weird saint's name. Yeah, no clue how to pronounce it. So at the very <laughs> least, you got that. Does nothing for us. You can read this next section. M -m Master, you can have no idea how much t t trouble, how much deadly loss and difficulty we have had in overtaking you across the mountains, across the wide-blown seas and the creaking plains of this fair world. What am I, your s slave, but an abandoned sh shell, the sport of a thousand tides, cast up here in this lonely place because I cannot r rest without you? How could you, the red-clawed master, know of the endless labor you've cost us? The red-clawed. Mm -hmm. The claw. And also the idea about the sport of a thousand tides cast up here. I mean, that sounds a bit like, if you're thinking of ships and, and time travel sort of being bandied about through time, that's what Heather seems like, too. And he does, for whatever reason, he does know that Severian is carrying the claw. Right. Yeah. Either because Agia told him or whatever, but he's, he calls him the red clawed master. But even that he doesn't call him the blue clawed master. He's the red clawed master, which suggests he knows something about that claw. Yeah. Yep. A blood soaked claw. Yeah. 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 Um, and the other thing, too, is what he says here is, you know, they've gone across the mountains, across the seas and the plains. Um, not yet. <laughs> right. I mean, they will like they he will follow him across mountains mm -hmm. and across plains. But we haven't really done that yet. There's yeah, he's just moved up the river here. It's like too dramatic. Yeah. yeah. Well, Severian notes that 
since they're on foot, and Severian and Jonas have been on destriers for the last four or five days, Severian figures it would have been pretty difficult to catch up to them from Saltus. And I agree. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and Haythor then looks at Buzik, as Severian thinks, as if that confirmed just what he'd been telling him. And then Haythor sits on the ground. Haythor could guess that Severian is headed toward House Absolute, and Severian and Jonas are slowing down to do a couple executions or three. But Haythor catching up to Severian from where they originally started uh, running from the nodules, that's impressive. Yeah. Because they've been at a full gallop this whole time. Yeah. Uh, perhaps they were using the pterodactyl things, the, the teriops, yeah. <laughs> I think they're called. I don't know where he stables those things when he's not using them. <laughs> Yeah, oh, he's got the mirrors, right? He can stable them. Right? <laughs> Bring um, up another one. Yeah, exactly. But can you can, can you command a critter to come out at will like that? I don't you know. Say, I, and now I want a Terry Hopper. I don't know. I mean, I think that's the implication somehow is that that's, that's what he does, right? I mean, if he's supposedly bringing these things up from wherever he is, that yeah, that's the implication. But whether or not it's true, you know, I yeah. don't know. But I do love that weird little moment where he's like, exactly, exactly. And he's yeah. using the significant look at Buzak like it's it's settled some argument they'd had for a long time. <laughs> I've been telling you. <laughs> I know. And it's so cool. And Buzak's been with him the whole, like, for a while, right? So right. I, the only thing I can think that that might mean is that Buzak is new on the scene and, and Heather's been telling him how long and hard it's been to chase Severian. Right. But if he did bring Buzak real quick. No, no. Because he, I think he says that they both came from Saltus together. Okay. Yeah I, yeah. I don't know. I'm just trying to make sense of it other than it just being a cool way to keep Heather yeah. being inscrutable. Yeah. <laughs> or Buzak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't. I, I don't know. So... Cornet Minius gives his name and asks, who are you? And I think he's referring to Hathor and Buzek. But Hathor answers, bobbing as though he would have bowed. Remember, he's sitting on the ground. He says, Master is the noble Severian, servant of the Autarch, whose urine is the wine of his subjects. In the guild of the seekers for truth and penitence, Hether is his humble servant. Buzek is also his humble servant. I suppose the man who rode away is his servant, too. Severian signals somehow for Hether to shut up and says... (laughs) We are only poor travelers, Cornet. We saw you lying here stunned and sought to help you. A moment ago, we thought you were dead. It must have been a near thing. Severian is telling a lie because the true backstory is confusing and unhelpful. Minius says, what is this place? He's repeating his questions. Maybe he's forgotten or maybe Severian's answer isn't sufficient. Minius knows his name, like Dorcas did, but nothing else. He doesn't know this world or what his place in it is. But Hathor is extra helpful (laughs) about the details of where they are. His path to catch up with Severian and send the Notchwals after him. (laughs) The road north of Kiesko. Master, we were on a boat, sailing the wide waters of Guile in the blind night. We disembarked at Kiesko on her deck, and at her sails we worked our passage, Buzek and me, so slowly upriver, while the lucky ones whizzed above on their way to the house absolute. But she made headway whether we woke or slept, and thus we caught up to you. 
Um, let's see, quiesco is Latin for I rest or I sleep. I've tried to dredge up meaning from this name. Not a lot of success. Remember, there's no plot-driven reason that we need to know the name of this town. It's possible that town name refers to graves that they're digging up at Saltus. Perhaps that was a massive cemetery. Mm. Yeah. And that's, you know, four days travel back from where they are. The geography doesn't quite work, but it's the only association or meaning that I can draw. It's also one of the few times Heather makes sense, right? He's like, no, we, were, <laughs> we caught up to you because we were on a boat that could just keep moving even when we yeah. had to rest. Yeah. At the words house absolute, Minius perks up. It's very incest. It's not far from here, I think. And Minius says, I am to be especially vigilant. <laughs> and Severian just says, I'm sure one of your comrades will be along soon. And then he gets back on his destrier, and Hethor is appalled that he's going to leave them behind again. So one only thing about that is that it's if he's remembering something, it's like maybe he's remembering something important. I'm supposed to be especially vigilant. Like, did they know somebody was on the road? I think that's his – isn't that his – his job when he's working near the house. Yeah. I mean, it could be that too, right? It could just be that, you know, he's a guard. So his whole job is to be especially vigilant. And, but it's such a weird, ambiguous phrase when you got that, especially in there that is this unusual. Maybe he's supposed to be watching for someone. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We just don't know. Yeah. But Heather goes on. He says, master, you're not going to leave us again. Buzek has seen you perform, but twice. So Hathor picked up Buzek and Saltus during the execution of Morwenna and the cattle thief. I think so, right? Because right. Severian also says, though, that they, they plied their trade, or he plied his trade along the way. Right. But they've only caught up with him now, right? right. So mm, that's, true. True, true, true. that seems to make sense. Severian is just about to answer Hathor, and then he sees a flash of white in the trees across the highway. He thinks maybe the guy who sent the nodules is sending something else, so he better get out of there. So he takes off on his destrier, leaving Hathor and Buzek to the tender mercies of the Notchul assassin, whoever he is. <laughs> and he shoots off for half a league, and that's the distance a man can walk in 30 minutes. He's running in the narrow area between the highway and the river, and then he rejoins Jonas, who, again, it feels out of character for him to have abandoned Severian by so great a distance. But when Severian describes what he saw, and it seems he described it in more detail than he did for us. Jonas just listens, lost in reflection. And then he says, I know of nothing like the being that you describe, but there may be many importations I know nothing of. And Severian says, but surely such a thing wouldn't be wandering free like a strayed cow. But Jonas points at the ground a bit ahead of them. There's a, quote, gravel path less than two feet wide, crawling up into those trees where Severian saw it. It's bordered with wildflowers, but in varieties that it's obvious they were curated and planted. The gravel are pebbles, quote, so uniform in size and of such shining whiteness, they must surely have been carried from some secret and far-off beach. That, frankly, that sounds like marbles, but there is something about it that feels different. The, the sense is that the gravel might have come from another planet. Mm-hmm. Could be, or at least just even like rolled stones or something that definitely doesn't belong in the middle of right. a place. The other thing too is that 
it reminds me of the very first chapter, the path in the graveyard. That's all of the white stones, mm-hmm. um, which was weird because Severian lost his way on it. And we talked yeah. about paths and time travel and all that. So who knows what kind of weird traps house absolute has all around it that yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe sure. take you to different times too. Who knows? And I think that honestly, I do believe that there is a, a cosmic uh, connection between this path and that path in the necropolis hmm. so they're both milky way <laughs> so um jonas concludes something that we concluded in the last chapter they are already on the grounds of house absolute and then severian gets his first thecla memory he recalls this very spot Yes, and once Josepha and I, with some others, made up some fishing party and came here, we crossed by the twisted oak. And Jonas just looks at him like, holy crap. And <laughs> Severian kind of feels crazy himself because, sure, he'd been on hunting parties at House Absolute, but, you know, he's sitting on a charger right now, not a hunter, and he has total identity confusion. And then he says his hands raise themselves like spiders to pluck out my eyes and would have done so if the ragged man beside me had not struck them down with his own hand, which was made of steel. So, yeah, this is the kind of debate that I had with uh, Michael Andre Driussi mm-hmm. about the, you know, about why Severian's hands raise up like spiders. Yeah. He's totally consumed by the identity of Thecla at this point. Yep. So much so that Jonas is a stranger and the effect of the revolutionary, it seems to me, it seems to me that this is the revolutionary taking hold. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That yeah. definitely seems like what's going on. Because otherwise there's no reason for Severian to pluck out his own eyes. Yeah, he that is Thecla. my opinion. He wouldn't, it's not like he's even freaking out and just turning against having somebody else in his identity. No, he, he loves Thecla. He wouldn't want to. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll get a, a nice fight like we did with uh, Rowena's execution. This would, that would be cool. <laughs> when Jonas smacks his hands down, he says, you are not the Chatelaine Thecla. You are Severian, a journeyman of the torturers who is unfortunate enough to love her. See yourself. And he holds up his steel hand as a mirror so Severian can see his own face. He writes, he held up the steel hand so that I could see the stranger's face, narrow, ugly, and bewildered. Well, that which is apparently Severian from Thecla's viewpoint, right? Yeah. And but he can see it. He quote quote reflected in its work, polished balm. So, a bunch of the editions that I check say balm, but it, you were telling me that it's actually palm. Yeah, Shadow and Claw, the tour version has palm. Yeah. Okay. So that makes actually makes sense because balm makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So he's, he holds it up, pulls up in the work polished palm. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I love that, that he sees his own, he he doesn't see his face. Thecla sees his face. (laughs) Narrow, narrow, ugly, ugly. and bewildered. Yeah. 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 Then Severian comes back to himself. He remembers his tower and there's another hint that the tower is a spaceship. I remembered our tower then curved walls of smooth, dark metal. And he says out loud, I am Severian. That is correct. The Chatelaine Thecla is dead. But then he gets to the thing that has maybe been building inside of him since Minius was resurrected. 
He says, Jonas. Yes. The Ulan is alive now. You saw him. The claw gave him life again. I laid it on his forehead, but perhaps it was just that he saw it with his dead eyes. Notice Severian is still unclear how the claw mm-hmm. works, as he always will be. And he says, he sat up, he breathed, and spoke to me, Jonas. He was not dead. You saw him. I am much older than you are, older than you think. If there's one thing I've learned in so many voyages, it's that the dead do not rise, nor the years turn back. What has been and is gone does not come again. But this is super ironic. Jonas is the result of the dead rising. Yep. And we'll get to it in Citadel of the Autark, but I strongly suspect his plan in going into the mirrors was to roll back years. And it might be, uh, I'm more convinced this read than I ever have been before, that there's some deliberate direct connection between Jonas and Hathor. Like I said, the way they never occupy the same space, same time, it, it means something. And I will bet that if we understood their pasts and their futures, the dead would rise and those years would roll back in ways that we would never understand. I believe that. Yeah. But Severian writes, Thecla's face was before me still, but it was blown by a dark wind until it fluttered and went out. And I said, if only I had used it, called on the power of the claw when we were at the banquet of the dead. And then Jonas interrupts him and says, the Ulan had nearly suffocated, but was not quite dead. When I got the nodules away from him, he was able to breathe. And after a time, he regained consciousness. As for your Thecla, no power in the universe could have restored her to life. They must have dug her up while you were still imprisoned in the citadel and stored her in an ice cave. Before we saw her, they had gutted her like a partridge and roasted her flesh. He grabs Severian's arm. Severian, don't be a fool. Uh, we got ice caves here. There's kind of a yeah. little callback to interlibrary loan. That's right. That's right. I had <laughs> yeah. And Severian records, at that moment, I wanted only to perish. If the natural had reappeared, I would have embraced it. What did appear far down the path was a white shape like that I had seen nearer the river. I tore myself away from Jonas and galloped toward us. Uh, from this point on, like so many wolf protagonists, that Tro, Sil, Green, in their doors, Severian will wrestle with thoughts of suicide. When he uses the claw unsuccessfully on little Severian in the Sword of Lictor, he says that if it had worked at that point, he'd have taken little Severian to the next town and found someone to watch over him and then gone off and slit his own throat because that would mean, as he always suspected, that he could have used the claw to resurrect Thecla as well. Mm-hmm. And Jonas is positive that it's impossible that the Ulan was dead and was resurrected by the claw. Is he also wrong that the clock could have resurrected Thecla? Well, I think this is a case of, I mean, you mentioned Mark's thing about everything's true. If Severian did do it, then he did resurrect Thecla. Like Severian saying, I could have done it when the truth is you did. Um, yeah. It's just not quite what you were thinking. It, it's also possible that Jonas saying this might, it might be a little bit of like repression here. Like it might be that he's got two sets of memories in him and he really doesn't want to deal with both of them. I mean, that is possible. Like maybe what's really bugging him here is what eventually we get to when he has his little breakdown in the antechamber. Maybe that he doesn't want to 
have the other memories of the other person come back, or maybe he's done a good job of keeping them there. But instead what happens is maybe the biological person comes to life inside him somehow like Thecla does. And that's what drives him insane um, or drives, pushes him too far. I don't know. But I mean, it, it seems like Jonas is, is super, super insistent on this point. Right. I mean, like, right. like it's the kind of insistence that makes you think there's something else going on. Well, in the case of a little Severian, when he tries to use a claw, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And when he tries to use it on Jolenta, it doesn't work. Is there any reason to believe that it couldn't have worked in any of those circumstances? Or even if he had put it to, you know, Thecla's roasted flesh, that she would have probably taken a while, but over time she would have reconstituted and come back to life. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like, you know the story of the monkey's paw? You know that story yeah. where where I it's that's kind of like what I imagine with Thecla, right? Like if uh, yeah. it would have been the third wish where the mangled sun actually comes back to life, but right. it's a horrid <laughs> creature and yeah. Um like that's what seems like Jonas is kind of possibly saying here mm. um about Thecla. Uh that it, that if he brought her body back to life, it would have been that. But yeah, this is starting to get into the question of yeah, why does the claw work sometimes and not other times? It's not like Thecla does come back to life in him. That's someone who's very close to him. This Ulan, he feels guilty for doing it. And so maybe there's something about Severian having done someone wrong and that's why he can bring them back. I don't know. I mean, like he didn't do anything wrong with little Severian. Um, You know, in fact, he was doing the right thing by taking care of him. So maybe that's why he couldn't do it. And why the little girl in the, the hovel, I don't, I don't know, but I mean, there have been so many reasons that people have hashed out for why some people can come back and others can't. Um, and, and I don't know, I'm, I'm mapping them out. I got a little chart over <laughs> here of, you know, possible reasons for, for different ones, but right. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't see a reason why it couldn't have worked. Dorcas argues that the claw works by reversing time. And that means, you know, reverse anything time has done to a body, right? I have a very specific idea of how it works, but you don't have to agree with me to affirm that the same power that can restore Minius and Miles. Well, you know, I could have done the same with Thecla and Little Severian. Uh, do you have any ideas of why it wouldn't work? We got resurrection here. This is we should talk about some resurrection here because this is just this is the first time he intentionally tries it. Right? Well, I've gone over this before. I I think that the claw it works because the reason it glows is because the first Severian is there and is active and it works when he wants it to work, which is to say he, he works when he wants to work in the case of Jolenta, she would not have thanked them for bringing her back to life. Um, Even if she could have been brought back all the way back to being a a skinny waitress, she wouldn't have been grateful. Um, He doesn't bring back little Severian because Severian would have Mm. killed himself if it had worked. He doesn't bring back Thecla because he needs for Severian to have to, to have joined with Thecla. So yeah, I think that there I think that there's an intentionality in the claw. And once again, it, this all comes to the fact that I see this as more of a science fiction novel than a fantasy yeah. novel. So I don't. So the idea of a of a of a wise claw acting for everyone's right. best interests, I don't really buy that. 
Um, so I think I understand why it works, but I think it, I think it could have, I couldn't think it could have brought back Thekla. I think it could have brought back little Severian in their full form. Just trying to think, just throwing this out there. Heather's around. Um, Heather's could be somewhere nearby when it, when Severian gets resurrected in the field. He, well, Heather's nowhere nearby when he resurrects Miles, right? No, okay. as far as we yeah. know, yeah. That's the only thing I was thinking. Like, does it only work when Heather's around, and what would that mean? Oh, well, let's um, see. He could have been. Yeah, he could have been in Thrax. Um, yeah, I was thinking he was in Thrax, and so it works with the little girl. But well, of course, he doesn't really. The thing, the thing is, he doesn't need the claw. Right, right? or, or he, even he resurrects Triskelly. Right. It's not like the pot, the claw right, has to right, do right. anything. Yeah, it's not in as yeah. And that's that's where you get to the thing too that the claw isn't isn't the the magic power right? yeah it's, it's just a little signal device yeah. there is somebody here op yeah. operating yeah. <laughs> in yeah. my opinion yeah that's what i hadn't thought before like if there was something about heather because it it certainly works when heather's close here oh um, wouldn't that be wonderful <laughs> I would, that would yeah. be so ironic i am the claw he's wait yeah uh, look at his name look at his name Thor. The Thor. yeah and heather the thorn Heather is at least nearby when he uses it on Jonas. Yeah, he's off. He's he's setting monsters free <laughs> after them. Even in um, uh, Declan, uh, the the wizard's village, mm -hmm. uh, when he's battling the wizard and he's using the power of the claw, yeah. right? Hathor is nearby. That is, I hadn't thought about that. He is often around when the when when Severian yeah. uses. But that also kind of fits with your thing about if it's first Severian doing something, then who knows what kind of connection Heather might actually have to first. Severian. True. Yeah. But yeah, but I am leaning more and more all the time to Heather and Jonas being connected, but yeah, it still, it still works. Well, one other thing we haven't talked about is the giant white thing that he sees in the trees. And we're going to, of course, see them a little bit right. more later. Right. It's the big statues. There's, we're not supposed to. I love those things. <laughs> They're one of my favorite, favorite images of this is the giant Greek, to me at least. Yeah, there's like, like, like a big David or something around. like oh, that, yeah, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I love the, love the idea of those. Um, <laughs> so I haven't actually offered an old from the archives Curiositas Urthus in a while, but I did find one. Curiositas Urthus. It's from uh, Daniel Denehi Oaks, who I don't think we've yeah, mentioned oh, much, yeah. who was participated a ton and still is around. I, th I think, yeah, he's still, I, I think I still see him uh, post on the earth. Yeah, yeah, he still like. posts, but I don't, I don't know that we've really mentioned him much. But anyway, he had a an idea that he was wondering if there's some kind of proto version of the Hyraduels, or at least, or at least if they're modeled on the Hyraduels because of the way that they are said to look similar to the faces underneath the ugly masks of oh, wow. and Barbados. So I just thought that was an interesting one to throw out there. We're going to say more about them next time because they actually get to do stuff next time. But I figured that would be a nice little crazy connection. Yeah. Well, but uh, well, I, I, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything, but why would I not want to spoil something on this <laughs> podcast? Um, yeah, maybe, well, maybe they are weapons that are, were given to the Autark by the Herodules and then that's why they could look be, like or at the very least, if they're creatures that father Aniri created, and if Aniri is some way like 
the hieroglyphs. It's something mm-hmm. about that culture, right? They, those are right. I mean, they're masks too. The beautiful faces are masks too, but but right. if they're modeled on those guys because they remind Severian of that. Um, then yeah, at least it could be all of Inari's other weird hieroglyph culture in one way or another. But I just, it's such another cool way to end this thing with all this crazy stuff going on. You got Heather shows up again. The claw is going nuts. Severian's having moments of being Thecla. Jonas is having some weirdness with Heather. And then you run off. And the very last thing at the end is a giant statue <laughs> that you see only partway through the trees. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. So we left on a, on a weird cliff yeah. here. What's going on? So. That's one reason why this was so fun rereading it. It's just how much this chapter is just absolutely chock full of weird moment after weird moment after weird moment. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've theorized a lot. You've got theories, but I don't, you know, we must've left a lot of theories on the table. There's so many other ways this thing could be put together. Yeah. So many things in this one come through and, and we're only going to get more. I mean, things really ramp up at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of that is why some people have a problem with this book. It just feels like it's, there is no direction. It's all just one random baseball hitting out of nowhere every time. <laughs> yeah. And I, that feels like that sometimes plot wise, but interestingly enough, I think I, we're trying to map it out, not just with the similarities and how this one follows certain patterns that, that Sword does too, but I mean, there are, certain motifs and ideas that are coming up over and over again, death and resurrection, Mm -hmm. the problem of memory and of identity and memory are throughout this the whole time. I mean, you've got it with Severian and Thecla. We're going to find out it's the same thing going on with Jonas. Um, You've got the, this weird stuff about Heather being so like Severian, but different. And so, yeah, the, the through lines aren't necessarily just the plot. There's also all these through lines of, of different topics and problems and questions and themes and motivations and, that it does the right. first time. This is the part of Claw where it's easy to get lost, not only because we're getting ever closer to our first Brown book story, too, um, right. which is oh, right yes. smack in the middle of all kinds of other craziness in the antechamber. So, <laughs> no, this is this is one of my favorite parts. This These set of chapters right here, one of my favorite parts of the whole whole thing, uh, just because there's so much packed in in such a short Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I believe that if we could, put these together, we could put together the entire backstory of this book. It's all here. It's, it's a big cluttered, messed up room. And so if you can help us, if you can help us put everything back in place the way it ought to be, then I certainly will be grateful if you would reach out to us with your ideas and other comments, your thoughts, corrections, and complaints. And if you'd bring them to us on the Facebook group, subreddit, Twitter, email, or the Patreon site, and you can find out how to do that on the show notes, leave an Apple podcast review and tell your wolf reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. We will talk soon.
I'm all muddled because it's the morning. Uh, shoot, I'm trying to think. I feel like I should say something, but I don't know what to say. <laughs> no, 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 come on. Cool. Okay, hang on, hang on. I'm going to change chairs. Okay. Because this one makes a lot of noise. Yep. <clears throat> okay. Get to, I didn't, I don't think I really did a Heather voice before, did I? I don't think so. so. I said, I, you know, I like, you know, I'm, I, I'm too old and fat now to do Severian, but I could do Palamon <laughs> or Gerlo. Or... Yeah, I'll, I do, uh, I could, I could probably get away with, uh, Hildegard. <laughs> He's like large guy in a lot of clothes. I could do that. And yeah, 